If you would, please do take your Bibles and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We are on week number 13 of our series, A Life of Sanity in a World of Vanity. Now, some in this church are uh, approaching the age of learning how to drive, and, and road signs are important. And I've got a question, mainly for the younger people here in the church, but as some people always answer, even adults, uh, for uh, questions that go to the children. Um, there is a eight-sided road sign. What does it mean? I mean, it's in every country, right? An eight-sided road sign. What does it mean? Okay, come on. What does it mean? Yes, it means stop. And when it is placed on a road coming onto a major road, once you stop, you look both directions and you proceed, right? The stop sign doesn't mean stop forever, does it? No, you stop, you look both directions, and then you proceed. You stop, you look, and you go. Ecclesiastes, in getting us thinking, is really gonna help us today to stop, to look, and to go. In particular, today, our text is going to help us think about life and death. Whenever we hit a passage of Scripture, especially a difficult one uh, that may be harder than others to understand, I think it's important uh, to go to a couple of passages of Scripture. One in, in Luke 24, it's after the resurrection, we read that then he, that is Jesus, opened their mind to understand the scriptures. So you know what a key to interpretation, a right interpretation of scripture is asking God to open our minds to understand. You know, he earlier in that passage in Luke 24, he said that all the law and the prophets and Moses, they, they all pointed to me. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And then at the end of Romans, Romans chapter 15, Paul writes that for whatever was written in former days, and believe me, Ecclesiastes, written in former days for Paul and for us, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have come to you this morning to worship. We have come to hear you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. And so would you be pleased to open our minds to understand your word, to know you, to know the benefits of salvation by faith in Jesus. And Father, would you be pleased to encourage us Encourage your people, encourage this church through your word that we would run with endurance the race that is before us and that we would have hope. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Life is stormy. Ecclesiastes is helping us stay anchored to our calling to live by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight in that fallen world, a world which even this day has new details of its sin and misery, its frustration and futility, its confusion and chaos. Ecclesiastes, week after week, we see presenting the necessity, the one and only thing to to fear God in a fallen and frequently confusing and frustrating world. If you have to sum up Ecclesiastes, a good way to do it is this. Life without God is empty, vain, futile. Life with God is fulfilling. It has purpose and meaning. I'm so thankful that in this book that has really hard passages of which we are working our way through uh, today in particular, um, there's some good bookends that hold it all together. One is the bookend that just starts and finishes. All is vanity. All is like mist and smoke and vapor. It's fleeting. It's empty. I mean, cotton candy has more substance than what Solomon, the preacher, is saying about life under the sun. We saw in the end that the author, Solomon, the preacher, is saying that this book is going to have words of pleasure, but also hard words, words of pain. But yet they both provide perspective, and that one perspective is to fear God and to keep His commandments. And also, as we will see today in particular, help us to prepare for death and judgment. Last week, when we looked at chapter 8, in a message entitled Beneficial Yet Bounded, we, we, we saw the text begin with this declaration that wisdom is beneficial, but it ended with a pronouncement that wisdom is bounded or limited when it comes to knowing certain aspects of God's work. Because even, as we saw at the end of chapter 8, even the wise man who claims to know cannot find it out. Between that introduction and the conclusion, the preacher tells us that wisdom, nonetheless, is is beneficial in particular because it calls us to submit to authority, to fear God, and to be joyful. And we, we saw, we remarked that we see all of those in the life of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus submitting to authority, as it were. We see Jesus fearing, of course, his Father, and we see Jesus in the midst of a difficult Suffering life nonetheless is joyful. And why is that? How is that? Because we see that Jesus himself is the wisdom of God. You see, wisdom, like grace, is not a thing. It's a person. The good news in Ecclesiastes is that the last three chapters in particular, chapters 10, 11, and 12, um, do take a fairly positive emphasis. But here in chapter 9, the hard reality of the little that we know and the vast extent of what we cannot control is before us. We see throughout Ecclesiastes that the more the preacher looked, the more he struggled to make sense of the world. Now, 
Isn't that interesting? You would think that you would look and explore and examine to get certainty, to get confidence, and yet we see the preacher struggle to make sense of the world that he observes. The more he looks, the more he struggles. But you know what? And this is really good news for us. Ecclesiastes does not claim to have the answers. Not only does Ecclesiastes not have the answers, it doesn't even claim to have the answers. However, what I hope we're finding is as we work our way through, Ecclesiastes is helping us to know God, to love God, to serve God, even when we don't have the answers. And you know what, my friends, that's called? It's called walking by faith, not by sight. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Solomon, the preacher, is struggling. But he's never going to give up faith that God is in charge. He is acknowledging that God sovereignly controls the affairs of both the righteous and the wicked. But this verse in particular is difficult to interpret, and there are good arguments made on either side. To whom does love and hate refer to? We see it again. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Well, after wrestling with this for a while, I I landed on that this is God's attitude, not man's. Remember what Paul writes in Romans 9 of God? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The point that the preacher is making, it is difficult for us to know right now here on earth in this circumstance whether God accepts or rejects us. But nonetheless, everybody is in the hand of God. And so the question emerges, if if both the righteous and the wicked are in the hand of God, The question is this, is God's hand for us or against us? It asks the difficult but crucial question, are we in the hands of a friend or a foe? And again, sometimes asking the questions without landing on an immediate answer is what the preacher is doing. He's helping us ask questions. I mean, we could just stop right there and go, well, what is my relationship with God like right now? Is it one of love or hate? Not so much do I love or hate God, but given what God thinks about sin, where am I in that? And so we will see after this acknowledgement of the sovereignty, the providence, and the mystery of God that the preacher is going to address matters of life and death. Matters of life and death. And I want to begin with the subject of death in general. 
the relevance of death, as it were. You know, infant mortality varies through the years, varies on location, but human mortality remains what? 100%, right? Every person that's born dies. Of course, Benjamin Franklin reminds us nothing in this world is certain but death and taxes. Woody Allen, a well-known American comedian, said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Indeed, is it any wonder that funeral directors, undertakers, sign all of their correspondence, yours eventually? Death is the great inevitable, but it's also for many of us, the great unmentionable. And people have devised two basic strategies to deal with death. We either deny it or sentimental. I never can pronounce that word. Uh, they, they make it sentimental. So what's your strategy for dealing with death? Because Ecclesiastes is not going to let us off the hook. We're going to have to literally walk through the valley of the shadow of death in our text today. What's your strategy for dealing with death? Is it one of these? Deny it, make it just sentimental and brush it off? Or is it something else? Does your philosophy of life enable you to face death with peace of mind, with assurance, with quiet confidence? Or does your operating system, your worldview, your, the grid through which you see everything does it instead lead to anxiety and fear when it comes to death? Let's just ask this question right now. Are you afraid of death? Well, let's look first of all of what the preacher says about death. In verses 2 and 3, he says death is certain. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It's delayed maybe, but it's not eliminated. We pick up in verse 2. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Notice in verse 2, the same event happens. In verse 3, the same event happens to all. Well, what is that event? Well, we read further. After that, they go to the dead. It's interesting the preacher is saying morality is no protection against mortality. Those who begin in the womb will eventually end in the tomb. Righteous, wicked, those who sacrifice, those who don't, those who are clean, those who are unclean, those who are good, those who are evil. It's the same event. It's the, it's the great leveler. I mean, Ecclesiastes, excuse me, Hebrews says it right. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In so many words, and the preacher did use a lot of words here, he's saying death is certain. It's guaranteed. It's unavoidable. But not only 
beyond the certainty of death, there is the sadness of death. The sadness of death. Join with me as I skip to the end of verse 5 into verse 6. They, that is, the dead, know nothing, excuse me, the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Death is certain and most surely death is sad. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Death is an evil, ugly intruder that has come into God's world through sin. And did you hear what the dead, some characteristics of the dead, they know nothing, they have no reward, and their memory is forgotten. Everything done under the sun is over, we read. They've already perished. They can no more share in anything in life. Death is certain. Death is sad. And death can be. And death is potentially sudden. Sudden death, you know. I'm trying to still figure out the overtime rules between college and professional football. And I never get it right. But sudden death. Now, that's just in a game of sport. But look with me at verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. Notice the preacher again is making observations of life under the sun. And he says time and chance happen to them all. Again, we're recognizing that man is finite and fallible in his perspective. It looks to us that time and chance are somehow, it's random. It makes no sense. There's no order. But of course, Solomon He's just making those observations that, of course, are limited. Limited by the human perspective of life under the sun. Notice these illustrations of racing. Who should win? The fastest. Battle. Who should win? The strongest. Who's got the wisdom? They should come out on top. Who's got knowledge? They've got favor. And yet, he goes on to say, it's not always how it works. Look at a... Look at a fish that's just doing what fish do, right? Are they in school or are they swimming in schools, kids? They're swimming in school, right? And all of a sudden the net comes down and they are out of the water. It's just a matter of time before they're dead. Now, and look at this other picture. A bird just doing what a bird should do and the next thing you know it's in a snare. 
Solomon, the preacher, is using these illustrations of, of fish and birds to say that in the sea of life, in the air of life, we are not masters of our fate. We are not captains of our soul. Death can come suddenly when you least expect it. We read that in scripture. We know that in life. Solomon is describing life as he sees it. And yet Solomon continues to give glimpses that he knows that even in the midst of this, seemingly random, seemingly chance, nonetheless God orders all events. Notice this is not a passing glance that we've made, but rather it's a steady look at death. But that's not all. Our text also addresses the subject of life. The focus, of course, is on life under the sun. But this focus on life under the sun does spur us on, I think, to, to wonder, to think about life that's not under the sun, life that's over the sun, life that's beyond the sun. In the words of more to this life, Life that these eyes alone can't see. I think James must have been reading Ecclesiastes when he wrote in James 4, 14, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, a little time, and then vanishes. It's almost like the entirety of Ecclesiastes comes to bear in that. And Jesus addressed several times, we see it in Matthew and Luke, do not be anxious about what? Your life. Where are you going to get clothes? Where are you going to get food? Life under the sun. Is there anything more basic than eating and wearing clothing? But we see in our text that life, first of all, is hopeful. Listen to verse 4 into verse 5. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. Life is hopeful. If you are alive, if you can hear my voice, if you can read the text right now, you have hope. Life is decidedly worth living. It's literally better than nothing, Solomon is saying. And look at this proverb. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Uh, we could spend 30 minutes talking about that, but just think of the dog in those days and in that context as not the kind, domesticated, stress-relieving, bone-fetching, predator-chasing, great pet to have. No, this kind of a dog is a scavenger, a scavenger that's picking up scraps and to be called a dog was the ultimate of insults. But it's contrasted with the powerful 
predator, the lion, the royal beast, the one who would symbolize power and royalty and might. But you know, Solomon is saying, as hard as life is, as difficult, as frustrating and unexplainable, a living dog is better than a dead lion. I need to remember that in the difficult days. I need to remember that in the days of confusion and chaos, and I think you do as well. Notice that the living know that they will die, and therefore they can prepare for death. Earlier in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we read this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The dead can't lay it to heart, only the living can lay it to heart. But not only is life hopeful, life is enjoyable. Look with me as I read verses 7 through 9. Go, eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life in your toil at wit and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Life is enjoyable. You can think of this as wine, wife, and work. Find joy as circumstances allow under the shadow of death. It's the sixth enjoyment um, exhortation. The others were kind of advice, but here he's drilling down and saying, go eat. Let this happen. Let you wear white. Put oil on your head. Enjoy life. Five imperatives. Go, eat, drink, enjoy, do. Knowing, of course, that God is the source of all the gifts of earthly life. One commentator says it well. True spirituality has honest delight in lawful pleasures. You want to hear that again? True spirituality has honest delight in lawful pleasures. I mean, some have even gone on to talk about a Christian hedonism, a Christian philosophy of pleasure, and certainly there is. God gives good gifts even in the midst of a sinful and fallen world to enjoy feasting, enjoy meals, enjoy the relationship between a husband and a wife, enjoy the relationship between friends. Mutual support, encouragement, enjoy it, be grateful. And even in your toil, even in your work, find satisfaction, find joy. So life is hopeful, life is enjoyable, but we also see life is limited. Therefore, it needs to be purposeful. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and show to which you are going. How are we to love God? With all of what? Our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Go for it. 
Run as fast as you can. Work as hard as you can. Here is this realistic view of life. Dealing with life as, it, as we find it, as it is handed to us. Notice again in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Don't do it halfway. Don't bide the time. But work hard. Enjoy it. Do the best you can. Why? Because pretty soon, there's no work, there's no thought, there's no knowledge, no wisdom for those going on to the place of the dead. Someone said it well, seize the day before death seizes the self. Seize the day before death seizes the self. Now the preacher here has addressed several matters concerning both life and death. Ecclesiastes, like the entire Old Testament, what does it do? It leans forward to the coming of the Messiah. And the New Testament, what does it do? It leans forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And so what do we learn about Jesus Christ from this passage? I think three things. One, in his earthly ministry, Jesus addressed matters of life and death. Think about the Gospels. Every day, in one way or another, Jesus is addressing matters of life and death. Not trivial matters, not political matters, not really cultural matters, but matters of life and death. And not only did he address matters of life and death, Jesus took matters of life and death into his own hands. Paul writes that the wages of sin is death, but don't forget about what follows. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus has conquered death. That's what our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 15 reminded us. And he has defeated death. The writer to the Hebrews says that it was through his death that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has conquered death. He has defeated death. He has given eternal life to those who believe in him, to those who receive him, to those who rest and rely on him as he's offered in the gospel. Jesus addressed matters of life and death and Jesus took matters of life and death into his very own hands. So my friends, There's an eight-sided sign in our text today, and it says this, stop. Look to Jesus. In doing so, look in both directions. Look at life, look at death, and then go forward and live life knowing that whereas the thief comes to steal, to only steal, 
kill and destroy. Jesus has come that we would have life and have it abundantly. Remember what Paul tells the church. For you have died. What? We're living. No, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. My friends, our life and our death are in good hands. The good hands of the good shepherd who gave up his life to death and rose from the dead so that we would live and not die. Now wait a minute. Didn't you earlier say that everybody dies? Yes. But listen to these words of Jesus following the death of a friend and before that friend returned to life. Here's what we all need to hear today. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus went on to say these words. Do you believe this? My friends, that's the question for us today. Do we believe this? Do we believe the good news of the gospel? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do we believe he is that friend for sinners that we just sang about? Do we believe that Christ is our only hope in life and death? Do we believe that it is in Christ alone that our hope is found? Really, Scripture doesn't give us any other choice. There is no other person. There is no other philosophy. It's Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this difficult passage that causes us to wrestle, to think, to stop, to look at life, to look at death, and then to look to Jesus and walk by faith and not by sight. Oh, Father, be pleased to strengthen your people today. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.